0: to Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, top supply chain industry professionals and the nation's top thought leaders join host Brian Strait and share their unique insights to help supply chain managers stay one step ahead of their competition. This is Talking Supply Chain. Did you know that more than 60% of the world's hungriest citizens are women and girls? Females also make up more than half of the supply chain workforce, with many of those working in Southeast Asia. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Talking Supply Chain. I am your host, Brian Strait, and I thank you for joining me today. On this episode, we are going to tackle the topic of gendered risks in supply chains. What are gendered risks? Our guest today is going to explain those and the important work Care Impact Partners is doing globally to reduce those risks. Emily Patrick is Chief Strategy Officer of CARE Impact Partners, which is part of CARE. Welcome, Emily. I'm glad you can join us for this important topic today.
1: Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to talk about social impact and supply chains. Uh,
0: Great. I'm I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm excited to learn about this topic as well, because it's not something I know enough about, obviously, and I I think I should, and I think all of us probably should. So I'm glad you're going to be part of this conversation. Can you get started by telling us a little bit about CARE and CARE Impact Partners and, and what you guys are doing?
1: Yeah, sure thing. So bear with me for a moment as I go through a couple of key layers of CARE so that I can give your listeners a sense of how we're working in this space. So CARE is a global nonprofit operating in 100 countries, reaching more than 160 million people annually. Our mission is to save lives, defeat poverty, and achieve social justice. We were established 78 years ago, and we have deep roots in the communities and countries in which we operate. I personally work at Care Impact Partners, which is a part of Care, and basically we're the corporate advisory arm of Care. And what our team does is we work with Fortune 500 companies to help them to integrate social impact and gender equity into their core business operations. We'll get into that and what that means a lot more later, but for now, think social return on investment. CARE Impact Partners then sits within a larger women's economic justice team at CARE, which is broadly focused on helping women build access and control to financial resources through earning, saving, and investing. And that's our focus because ensuring women are included in the economy and building economic resilience of women is the fastest and most efficient way to achieve economic growth and strengthening communities.
0: Great. So, you know, you guys are involved in, in, in... this gendered risk um, thing. So can you talk, tell me a little bit about what the intersection is um, between social impact, gender equity and supply chains, and what are some of these gendered risks? What What are they, what are the barriers that we have to addressing them in the industry?
1: Yeah, certainly, Brian. Uh, that's a really great question so the intersection of social impact and gender and supply chains is really about recognizing the broader impact of business has on society and then trying to operate in a way that drives positive outcomes for people and for business Mm -hmm. at care impact partners which i will sometimes refer to as cip We take a systems approach, so we're not just talking about the direct impacts of business actions, but really about the larger ecosystem, which shapes the environment for social impact, gender equality and supply chain resilience. Before kind of jumping into specific gender risks, I'm going to go through a few key context points that I think really help to frame out the conversation. Um, So in my work, I work a lot in agricultural supply chains and manufacturing supply chains. So think uh, consumer product companies, um, the chocolate that we eat, garment, the clothes that we wear, etc. So when we're thinking about agricultural supply chains, um, a recent study from Mars Farmer Income Lab estimates that up to 70 percent of farmers are likely living below the poverty line, which is already well below what would be considered a living income. On the manufacturing side, uh, a great Oxfam report that came out recently called What She Makes, uh, says that 99 to 100% of fast fashion workers, um, so think companies like Xian, in countries such as Bangladesh and Vietnam, which are two of the world's leading garment manufacturing countries, work for less than a living wage. And almost 90% of workers interviewed felt that their income is not sufficiently or partially met to their needs. So basically, Across sectors, you know, whether we're talking manufacturing or agriculture, upstream supply chain workers, so the factory workers, the farmers, the smallholder farmers, et cetera, they're typically concentrated in low to med- medium income countries and they tend to work for very little under really challenging conditions. Um, consequently, their households face food insecurity, they struggle to access viable economic opportunities in formal finance and are often unable to cover basic expenses like medical services and education. These challenges that I just mentioned are inherently gendered because women bear a disproportionate burden in the face of economic precarity. So zooming in a bit, I'd like to highlight a couple of key gender risks that prevent women in supply chains from really reaching their full potential. Um, So at a high level, I think that applies to most women in these circumstances, they carry what we kind of in the development space call the triple burden which is the burden of engaging in paid work, like farming or working in a factory, as well as unpaid housework and childcare. This means that women are working far more hours than their male counterparts and are still being out-earned by them, while also man- managing the exhaustion, the stress, the burnout, everything that comes with having the, the weight of all of these responsibilities on them. Uh, Beyond the triple burden, women are faced with harmful social norms and practices that prevent them from essentially equal participation, Um, and that's particularly prevalent in the context of supply chain. And this exclusionary behavior limits women's access to opportunities, their decision-making power, and really just fair treatment within the workforce. And this has implications at the household level as well as at the business level. So just to give you an example on the agricultural side of things. While women often do the majority of farm work, um, they're rarely considered the primary farmers. And so what that means is that when a company or a supplier is doing a training, maybe focused on something like good agricultural practices or like weeding, um, women are often excluded from those those trainings because they're not considered the farmer. This is bad for the household because production will be impacted, right? If they're not doing weeding that is going to be effective, they're going to have issues around raw material quality. And it's bad for business because then the business is now getting (laughs) poor quality of raw materials, right? And so this is just a good example just in terms of highlighting that these risks and supply chains are gendered, but they have both human implications at the household level and they have business implications in the long run. Beyond the couple that I mentioned around the triple burden and exclusionary practices, gender-based violence discrimination is still a pervasive issue. Uh, it affects women in every sphere of their lives. In the supply chain context, behaviors like sexual harassment can negatively impact women's mental health and physical health, as well as their productivity at home and at work. And that kind of discrimination not only harms the individual women that are experiencing it, but it also has broader implications for their families and for their communities. And In most supply chains that I've experienced, uh, women face limited access to economic opportunities, including ownership of farmland, which is more often than not in the man's name, or involvement in decision-making processes. And so this financial vulnerability further exacerbates gender disparities and really perpetuates cycles of poverty. Uh, Conversely, when gendered risks are intentionally addressed in supply chains, And women are equipped to participate equitably. Women, their families, and their communities are healthier, better educated, and more financially secure.
0: So that I mean that's a lot of information um, for people to go through. um, But I I think boils down. One of the questions that I would have is that. There are a lot of companies, not speaking gendered risk here, but just in general, and their suppliers that they receive goods from. They don't care about them, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's just they're just a supplier, and I'll just go to another one. So when you talk about these risks, especially when we're talking like Southeast Asian countries, you know, sure. where we get a lot of uh, apparel from and, and other goods, why do, why do the companies why do they need to be concerned about this really? It, it, these gender risks, and and why do they need to why do they need to address this? Yeah. Down the supply chain.
1: yeah, I think it's it's a great question. And uh, it's honestly an evolving conversation. Um, corporations have a tremendous impact on the ecosystems in which they operate. And that's from, of course, within their company walls, all the way through to the first mile of their supply chain and every single step in between. And so because of their impact and really their dependence on these ecosystems, addressing gendered risks is not only an ethical obligation, but also a business imperative for their long-term success. So while this imperative applies to, I would say, many aspects of the business, I'm going to focus on kind of the first mile of the supply chains. Um, So... Just to give some personal context, over the last decade, I've been working at the intersection of social impact and supply chains across both the private sector and the public sector. Uh, Through that, I've traveled to origins and factories in more than 30 countries and have worked with stakeholders across every step of the value chain, from smallholder farmers uh, in rural West India to suppliers to B2B businesses and C-suites sitting in boardrooms. And the thing that I have noticed and that I hear consistently from my partners, particularly those that are in country, is that supply chains are at risk, truly. And that risk is connected to poverty and equity, the climate crisis, and honestly, poor business practices. And neglecting these risks and excluding a gender lens jeopardizes the very existence of future supply chains. So just to kind of give, give us a little bit more of a um, concrete framing, imagine you're a, a CPG company, right? As interrelated social and environmental issues become more pronounced and pose challenges for producers and farmers and suppliers, the resilience and viability of your supply chain is going to be affected and is actively being affected right now. So thinking about more of the uh, agricultural side, raw materials are becoming harder to get. And I say that because volumes of raw materials are going down, there are massive quality issues that are related to like lack of investments in farms or in deforestation and climate change effects. The next generation of farmers is disappearing. So because there's not necessarily viable opportunities to earn a living income through farming, there's a big exodus of young people who are leaving agricultural pursuits for better prospects in urban areas. On the manufacturing side, you've got low wages, unsafe working conditions, gender-based discrimination and violence in factories, all of which contributes to lower productivity, higher turnover, and higher costs, essentially, for the end buyer or the brands of these companies. And then all the while, at the same time, you have regulators, investors, employees, and consumers demanding more meaningful action from the companies that they engage with. I'm sure Given that this is a supply chain podcast, many of your listeners understand the evolving regulatory environment and how there's a massive shift of more responsibility for the conditions of the supply chains onto the companies themselves, which was not always the case. Um, And then you have stakeholders, including investors and consumers that care about the company's social sustainability performance. And because of how traceable supply chains are now, brand reputations essentially hang in the balance. All it takes is, you know, uh, really poor working conditions in a factory or, um, you know, exposure of child labor to really impact a brand reputation. Um, And so for, for me and the work that we do at Care Impact Partners is really to get companies to understand that these human risks in the supply chain, poverty, inequity, lack of access to services, et cetera, that those are business risks and they need to be addressed as such. Because when they are, and a lot of the work that we actually do at CIP is to help companies kind of understand the business case for making these kind of investments, you see benefits to the business side, right? You have boosts in employee recruitment, retention, and engagement. You have an improvement generally around brand reputation. Companies are enabled to anticipate and meet evolving regulatory requirements and avoid operational disruptions, and they're able to future-proof their business by anticipating and managing risks related to the climate crisis and resource depletion, which ultimately creates value for the company's stakeholders. And then, of course, from CARES' perspective, (laughs) as a social justice organization, that by leveraging market systems to drive impact and empowering women in supply chains, companies can contribute to economic growth, poverty reduction, and sustainable development. And so that's where I really see space for this virtuous impact loop where there has to be a benefit to the business, but that benefit also has to drive social change so that we're bringing along people through the process and leveraging the massive power of market systems to alleviate global poverty.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and tying back to the the, the question too, You know, as you, as you gave it, it was a wonderful answer to that, the question I'd asked. But for businesses, I, I think so many of them that like so don't care about their suppliers, but they are learning, right? In the last few years, we've learned about ethical sourcing and, and other things that they're right. feeling pressure on from boardrooms and whatnot to do that. And in the end, all businesses these days are in the, the business of risk mitigation. Yep. And, and th- this is exactly what that is, right? I mean, th- this is risk mitigation for these companies.
1: It, it absolutely is. And I think the thing is, is that companies, there's a very big spectrum as to where companies are, different companies are on acknowledging this risk as actually core business risk. Yeah. And I think the companies that you see that have really adopted that kind of social risk approach are those that are in commodities that have had a lot more external phasing pressure right? Yeah. So you've got kind of the cocos and the coffees of the world. You're starting to see a lot more of it with apparel because there's a lot of been, been a lot of um, exposure to what's actually happening in those factories. And so I think that, you know, all companies should be taking note of those ones that are starting to, to deepen the process because everybody will have to get there eventually, whether it's from a regulatory standpoint or purely a viability in their supply chain standpoint.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and I think to, to help the businesses, um, I, I think my the segue is nice to my next question, which is that you know your organization's involved in a lot of different areas um, in, in building resilient supply chains, equitable um, supply chains, support living incomes uh, for those that work within the supply chain. So can you kind of talk for, in a broad perspective about some of the best practices yeah, that are absolutely. out there to drive the impact across all these value chains for everybody?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So building resilient and equitable supply chains is complex. There's no doubt about that. And it requires action across a lot of different actors. Since we don't have a full podcast to dive in this question, although I wish we did. Which is probably maybe, a
0: podcast by itself, maybe, right? Yeah, maybe
1: make a note <laughs> for later. <laughs> I'm going to focus my answer on kind of two categories. Uh, I'm going to talk about best practices in kind of corporate HQ and then how we approach this work at CARE. There okay. are many other pieces to this that I just don't have the space to get into right now. Um, so on the HQ side, I want to start with that because I know your listeners are probably on the more you know, supply chain technical side of things, Decision and wa- decisions and ways of working at the global level within a corporation have massive implications upstream. So talking about kind of best practices, particularly that I see in the corporate partners that we work at, right? Like I mentioned earlier, we work with primarily Fortune 500 companies, usually more on the Fortune 200 side. So I've got a lot of insight into what some of those companies are doing and what I see as either best or promising practices. So I think first and foremost, and I mentioned this a little bit or alluded to this already, More mature companies acknowledge social risks across their supply chain, like poverty and inequity, as business risks, and they invest accordingly, right? So, for example, you know, a coffee company might observe that incomes for farmers and one of their origins have stayed consistent while the cost of living has skyrocketed. I think everybody can kind of resonate with that. We've seen inflation happening everywhere. A more mature company in that circumstance would understand that this situation poses an existential threat to their coffee supply chain from that origin and would look to invest in a a supply chain in ways that would ultimately make coffee farming financially viable again. What a less mature company would do is that they would take more of a traditional kind of corporate social responsibility, CSR approach, and they might look at doing a kind of one-off investment or an isolated program designed to help impoverished coffee farmers deal with the consequences of the situation instead of addressing root causes. And so it's that acknowledgement of these human risks and supply chain as truly being business risks that is, I think, the foundational building block for all the other best practices that I'll mention. Um, Kind of going beyond the acknowledgement of risks and into the more operational side of things, I think what's really critical, and we're still collectively learning about how to do this, is embedding social impact and sustainability directly into the core business, which in the case of supply chains primarily means within kind of sourcing and procurement. Um, and that means the processes, the incentive structures, literally everything. Because as sustainability and social impact remain siloed with no connective tissue binding it to these core business functions, it's really difficult for a company to make meaningful and lasting progress. And so some examples of that are like visionary leadership, team restructuring so that you're actually bringing some of these teams together and getting rid of some of the artifacts and architecture of kind of siloed approaches to social impact and supply chains. Um. Double clicking into that a little bit in terms of like embedding in the business, strong companies are also integrating their social and environmental sustainability agendas so that their sustainability efforts mirror the interconnected nature of social and environmental issues in practice. Uh, There was a really great new report um, that came out. I was reading it a few days ago from IDH and Mars, which found that companies that do this successfully experience greater resilience, productivity and growth, in addition to influencing better outcomes for people and planet. Um, Like I mentioned, this is kind of early days and we are trying to figure out how to do this. I wouldn't say this is a best practice, but it's a necessary thing. And then there's promising practices around how to operationalize it. Um, Beyond that, I think there's two other things that I want to mention. One is a willingness to change business practices. So historically, what we've seen in kind of social impact initiatives and supply chains in terms of like addressing gender issues, addressing poverty issues, sometimes the onus is actually put on the communities and the suppliers, et cetera, in that specific region without any acknowledged accountability from the corporation side around how their practices have massive impacts on on poverty and inequity in their supply chains. Um, So just to give you kind of an example to make it a little bit more concrete, Uh, I was recently in a factory in Indonesia where I was talking to vendors that kind of own the factory group. And I was also talking to factory management and we were discussing issues around long-term contracts for workers and excessive overtime. And what they were telling me was, was was really like a profound learning experience because they were saying that basically the reason why they were having some of those issues was actually because of the purchasing practices of the brands that were sourcing from that factory. So for example, If a brand, and we're talking apparel in this case, if a brand is only willing to do short-term contracting, that puts the factory in a position where they don't have good forecasting for a long-term period, and they're going to only hire temporary workers, which of course, a temporary worker versus a long-term contract is a much more precarious situation for a woman to be in who's trying to, you know, make ends meet and and support her family. Uh, So that's a contracting example on something like ordering. If a company changes an order three weeks before Christmas, like the Christmas holiday production starts of a red striped shirt to a blue striped shirt, what that means is that the production time gets cut, you know, in half or in quarter, which ultimately leads to pushing workers from their allowed 80 hours of a work week into excessive overtime, which puts them in a situation where you see massive increases in sexual harassment, worker safety decreases, um, and and they're just in a hard situation. And that's directly tied to how a brand is choosing to to do their purchasing practices. And yeah. so companies that are doing really well are looking at how to change those internal structures, including in- incentives, right? I think we all know that procurement teams have historically been rewarded based on short-term metrics, such as you know meeting quality specifications at the lowest price point, um, which doesn't allow for them to take into account other strategies that might help drive greater equity, but that don't align with their internal metrics for success. And so you see changes happening across that. And then I would say kind of underpinning all of this and really important that businesses consider this is building the business case internally for social impact and gender equity work. And that of course goes hand in hand with the embedding that I mentioned, but actually, looking at internal business metrics and correlating how some of those business metrics are changing when you're deploying successful social impact interventions. An example being if you roll out a comprehensive program in a cashew supply chain in Tanzania, and that program is actually linked to the business, you can look at how farmer retention and productivity actually increases because the program has been deployed.
0: So so really, looking looking at decisions and, and understanding that when you make a decision, it's not just the number on the financial sheet that you're looking at. Absolutely, um, that there is an impact further down. And, and you know, you may be making that simple because it makes financial sense to make this decision, whether it's a cut a production time by a week or something or what have you. Um, but there there are consequences for that farther down in your supply chain um, that could be causing some of these issues, exactly. or, contrib- or contributing to them, I should say. Probably. Um, Can you get into um, kind of some of these efforts, and and can you explain at the where the various points are that that you guys will work with the corporation to kind of address gendered risks in the supply chain? And and examples, maybe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start kind of at a higher level with care, and then get into like how we actually work in this space. Yeah. In order to really address these issues, I mentioned that it's, it's a systems process, right? It's not just the corporation, it's the government, it's the INGOs, et cetera. Um, to this end, CARE is putting a really big emphasis on market systems change. And that's in order to tackle some of the biggest challenges that exist today. And we do that by actively working across kind of three main areas, advocacy, corporate strategy, and programming. Um, on the advocacy front, we're working with governments, multilateral organizations to change the policies and structures that create challenges in these environments. So just a quick example on that, because I think it's really relevant, is in 2020, CARE was participating and leading a uh portion of the UN Food Systems Summit focused on advancing equitable livelihoods, um, which at the time was estimated that 1.6 billion workers, which is half of the global workforce, was at risk of losing their livelihoods, ultimately translating to less food on the table. And CARE's work with that process led to the establishment of a Decent Work and Food Systems Coalition, which was adopted earlier this year through a set of ILO guidelines on the promotion of decent work in the food sector. And the guidelines, ultimately are in-depth stakeholder, multi-stakeholder consultation processes that involve the workers, the government, all of the different kind of actors in this space, which creates ownership of the guidelines and was a really monumental shift because of the massive implications that it has on promoting decent work in the agricultural food sector. On the corporate strategy front, which again, this could be a separate podcast because I can talk about this forever, we're helping corporations to operationalize the best practices that I just mentioned a few moments ago, like embedding social impact into core business operations and shifting procurement practices. Um, The way that CIP does that is that we basically sit in kind of a, a unique position in the sense that we sit within one of the largest nonprofits in the world. And so we're able to, uh, Work with corporations essentially at every point in their journey. So we can help corporations to build gender equitable strategies at the HQ level. I'll give a few examples in a moment, but like building frameworks or equitable procurement practices. And then we can actually operationalize those strategies across their global supply chain. So we're able to take a strategy and then look at almost every country that a company has in their supply chain and operationalize this work. And by working with companies across kind of that full continu- continuum of their enterprise, we're able to consistently collaborate and iterate our approach as we kind of learn together. So a couple of strategies or things that we've done recently, we recently worked with a, a very large uh Fortune 50 company, a global retailer that everybody would recognize, to help them to build a uh, gender equity framework for their whole business. And what that is, is basically it's their gender equity roadmap with a core set of metrics that will be maintained into the future and essentially applies to their enterprise, their owned operations and their extended supply chain. And what it does is it builds a consistent approach to how they're thinking about and working on gender so that it moves away from what is typically a more siloed approach where gender and social impact are kind of on the side and not embedded into the core business. That framework also has a handful of really key programs in garment factories in Southeast Asia that are focused on looking at basically how programs with smart mix solutions can address systemic issues at the factory level. I don't know if we have time to talk about too many more examples but it's really it's a unique space because we essentially work We're able to bring together the deep local roots and the broad global vision of care and then draw connections about what's happening, possible solutions and how to learn from a lot of different geographies, categories and tiers of the supply chain to continue to iterate this work so that we can essentially build the business case for why social impact and supply chains is so critical to long term supply chain viability.
0: Yeah. And, I, you know, look, I mean, there's a lot of examples I think you probably can give. And and and, and I think maybe having you come back and we can follow up with maybe another podcast down the road, um, get into some of these little more issues um, specifically. It's not, because it sounds like each of these is a, a podcast by itself almost. There's right? a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. Um, I do have a couple more questions I do want to get yeah. to um, quickly um, for you and give you a chance to kind of talk a little bit about your organization when you're done. Yeah. Um but one of the questions I'm curious about, and, and this is always something that intrigues me about global companies, is that countries are different. The values in those countries are very different. So, for example, in apparel, you know, a lot of uh, clothing is made in Bangladesh, in Indonesia, and in Vietnam. You know, each of these countries has different value sets that kind of identify their country. They're different from the way the U.S., for instance, or the way a lot of European countries are. So. When you're dealing with all these different cultures and the different views on some of these topics, um, how do you proactively like build strategies to identify what the gendered risks are that are most important to that region, to that that country, yes. those those people there? Um, I mean, for instance, sexual harassment may be a big deal, and I'm not saying it isn't, but in some countries, it, it's kind of accepted, right? And and mm-hmm. and, and it sh- probably shouldn't be, but it, it is in some in some cultures, for instance. Um, so how how do you go about identifying the strategies that you want to use to identify those risks and then enacting change and educating the, the workers and the and the businesses in those organ- in those countries?
1: Yeah, sure.
0: Um,
1: so first and foremost, Care has some of the most incredible country offices in the world, and what that means is that they understand the nuances of the local context. They have deep technical expertise across all of the areas we work, gender, agricultural supply chains, et cetera. And then they have deep presence in the countries that they're working themselves. And so what that allows Care to do, again, we have, uh, I think, 109 countries, if I remember correctly, um, that we're working in with full country offices, some of which have been there for 70 years, some of which have been there for 30 years. And what that means is it allows us to ground everything that we do in the realities of that specific ecosystem. Okay. And so we're able to, we, we don't do blanket programs that cut across, um, you know, five different countries with the same set of activities because we know that doesn't work b- because of exactly what you said, right? There are different local contexts. There are different, you know, regulations. I mean, I work a lot in garment. And if you look at Vietnam compared to Indonesia, there's massive regulatory differences that actually have huge implications to the gender and, and social status of people working in those supply chains. Um, so that's kind of the first and foremost, is that we always work with those teams and they lead in country um, to do this work. Beyond that, we acknowledge uh, a lot of, I think, really fundamental kind of guiding principles. Like, for example, we know that quick fixes or patchwork solutions don't work. So, we really strive to understand the complex ecosystem in which the supply chain exists, including the specific local context. And we understand a lot of what's happening in business, right? We understand the implications of business models, like the race to the bottom. Like, we're all familiar with that. We know that that's been the case, although it's changing. We understand the challenges related to power imbalances across supply chain actors and oftentimes a lack of shared responsibility. And so to account for these challenges and just realities of working in these spaces, we spend a lot of time engaging with actors at every step in the supply chain. Huh. The way that I talk about this is that I think when you're working in a supply chain context, there are so many different actors that all have different mandates and different things that they're working on and so what you have to do for example working in garment there's going to be a vendor that owns the factories there's going to be the factory management there's going to be the workers there's going to be the unions there's going to be all these different actors that have points of view and so what we do is we really focus on co-creation across those actors in order to drive ownership and shift mindsets, and part of that is really understanding the needs, limitations, challenges, and motivations of each one of those actors, because it's really when you, you know, looking at the Venn diagram, when you see that overlap is where there's a sweet spot to drive significant impact.
0: Yep, so when, when you talk about, you know, the actors, your partners, um, the, the companies involved in these efforts, um, you guys can't do this on your own, right? So so how, how big of a factor is their willingness to adopt this um these efforts and and to work with you into the success (laughs) right yeah
1: so yeah all of the partners involved have a massive role to play and they can also be huge barriers right i think that we take an approach where particularly when we're working kind of again take the garment supply chain you're working with factories and a number of different other actors You have to meet them where they are. If they're simply not willing to do something or they don't understand the business benefits of it, they're just not going to do it, whether you decide to fund and do the program or not. Um, And so we really try to co-create so that we build something that is actually operationally viable for that specific ecosystem. Beyond that, we really, really focus on kind of building capacity. Like we, we try to move levers at all levels, right? So we try to build capacity. Um, our capacity programs are really rooted in like empowering the ecosystem actors to be change agents to deliver on action. Um, from a kind of corporate partner standpoint, the the things that really set us up for success are, and I'm talking brands, right? Big brands, um, big brands. Really need to be open to focusing on depth over reach. Um, there's kind of historically been a challenge on the corporate side where there was a big push to have big fancy impact numbers. You know, we reached two million people through our program, and when it comes to supply chains, because the ecosystems are so complex, you really need to be able to drill down on depth over reach. Um, beyond that, it's really about collaboration, like true co-creation and the ability to work together on this so that we can design solutions that are actually fit for purpose and work in these contexts.
0: Yeah. So I uh, wanna get a final question in here, um, kind of about CARE in, in general. Um, it's involved in a lot of different areas of work, but I'd like to ask you about the CARE 23 goal, 2030 goal, I should say, mm-hmm. the, the 2030 goal, which which is aims to impact 220 million people. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what that is, how you guys envision success for that? Um, And then, and how do you achieve it?
1: Yeah. So as you mentioned, CARE's organization-wide goal is to support 200 200 million people from the most vulnerable and excluded communities to overcome poverty and social injustice. Of that 200 million person goal, 50 million is specifically focused on gender equality. Mm -hmm. And CARE believes that to achieve gender equality, we need to see changes across three key areas, agency, relations, and structures. So agency is really about the skills, the competence, and the aspirations of women themselves that they have, right? That's the kind of thing, you can't empower people, you can only remove barriers towards somebody's self-realized empowerment. And so building up that agency of women is a really important part of our strategy. Beyond that, as I mentioned, relations is a key part. So the relationship in people's lives and how they support equality. So a woman can have any skill she wants, if her husband or mother-in-law won't let her leave her house, that won't go very far. And so we work to change those relations around like social norms. We have a whole process that we do around engaging men and boys to be advocates and champions for evolving kind of the social norms in a given place. And then structures, right? The structures is the laws, the norms and practices that either support equality or get in the way. Like for example, persistent wage gaps or laws that prevent women's access to bank accounts. The structures piece is one of those areas where a lot of the supply chain work actually comes kind of Full, full center because part of what we're trying to do in our work with corporations, like I mentioned earlier, is to change their business practices and to evolve their way of thinking about social impact so that it's truly embedded in their process and in their business.
0: Yep. Yep. Uh, great initiative, Emily. Um, great goals and, and an important topic, um, that I, I I think probably needs much more attention when it gets. Um, so I, I want to thank you and and everyone at Care Impact Partners for the work you're doing on these issues. Um, please keep up the good the good work. Um, last last thing, simply um, for listeners out there that want to learn more about you guys, um, get involved. Uh, how do they how might they go about getting in touch with you guys?
1: Yeah, check out care.org and feel free to reach out to Care Impact Partners in terms of like specific corporate engagements. Our email is impact at careimpactpartners.org.
0: Great. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. I Lots I think we could do here. Um, I want to thank Emily Patrick for joining me today. This is definitely a problem that's not going away anytime soon. So the more we can do to help solve it. And, and make more equitable future for everyone, I, I think the better off we will be as an industry and, and world for that matter. Um, Emily, I, I don't know if you want to join me, maybe in the future we can come up with a follow-up podcast later and uh, there's probably some more topics here we can dig in a little deeper um, to help I, the audience. So I'd
1: love to, I could talk about this all day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you, the passion shows through. So uh, again, thank you for coming and on and uh, with me and I the conversation. A special thank you also to all of you out there listening today. I greatly appreciate you spending time with us For Supply Chain Management Review and the Talking Supply Chain podcast, I'm Brian Strait. Thank you for listening. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, supplychain247.com, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. For more information on this topic or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, a print or a digital subscription to our publication, visit scmr.com. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For Supply Chain Management Review, I'm Brian Strait, and thank you for listening.